Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast. I'm Asim Javed. For those of you new to Dragon Bites, we're a podcast series made by paediatric trainees and consultants in Wales for anyone interested in child health. Our podcasts cover a range of themes, normally with a focus on a different topic every episode. We're going to range from revision episodes for those of you sitting there written or clinical exams, right through to interviews with specialist consultants in different fields, with local charities and teams running public health campaigns, pretty much anything that seems remotely related to the world of child health. This week, our episode focuses in on clinical exam revision. A series of podcasts has been produced by one of our local trainees, Sophie Constantinou, who for this episode has interviewed Sean Williams, the clinical exam teaching lead for Wales. They hope to provide you with a range of hints and tips to help you get through your clinical exams. So let's get started. Right. Thank you both for being here. So my name is Sophie. I'm here today with uh, two of my friends and colleagues um, to talk about the MRCPCH exam. So do you guys want to introduce yourself and explain a bit about your role with the MRCPCH clinical? Yeah, right then. <laughs> I'm Sean. Hello. I'm a paediatric ST3, currently work in the Heath, and my current role is to uh, coordinate the MRCPCH clinical exam teaching programme. Right, and I'm Asim. Not only am I part of the teaching team, I do the written exam side of stuff, um, I'm also helping to run Dragon Bites, so I'm sort of here more because I'm a boss in the background <laughs> and I want to be involved. Oh, and I'm sure you've got some pearls of wisdom for us as well. Look, the wisest of all three of us. Yeah. <laughs> the wisest of the three Almost wise then. trainees. <laughs> Um, so really today we're going to be talking about um, some of our tips for the MRCPCH clinical exam and also the changes to the format of the new exam as well. To kick things off, uh, the first um, question really is to ask what is the point of the MRCPCH clinical and why do we have to do it? I think the point of the MRCPCH clinical exam is probably to tie off the, the theory exams. <laughs> <laughs> exam sort of teaches you all the sciencey stuff one well, it makes you learn all the sciencey stuff and the pathophysiology but it, you don't get to showcase how good you are in a clinical situation show how well you can develop a rapport with patients and parents and it's to make sure that you are safe to be a registrar and that's that's the point yeah i think the remit that the examiners get given is is that person who's stood across from you good enough to be an ST4, day one of the job, in clinic or on the ward. And if you can hit that level, then that's all they want. So I suppose that that's pretty much it, isn't it, for the clinical exam? Yeah, I think so. I wouldn't think about it in too much depth, though, because we have to do it regardless. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So um, obviously, if you look on the college website, the sorts of things that they are saying that they are trying to assess us on a communication, history taking, development, clinical judgment and all that jazz. Um, you can find a list of all the things that you need to, um, that you are being critiqued on in the exam on the MRCPCH website. Um, but basically, it's all the stuff you're doing anyway. So um, we're going to move on now to talking about our top tips for the exam. So you've both done the exam. Yeah. As have you? Uh, as have I, uh, pretty recently for me. Um, so I was just going to ask really about um, any sort of general tips that you have, you know, for anyone thinking about sitting the exam soon at the next diet or at the one in January, is it? February? 
Yeah, 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 agree. Well, Sean and I studied for the exam together. Um, I think having a gang of you who are all revising together at the same time is really helpful because there's so much that you can gain just by watching the other people do the stuff that you're meant to do for the exam. In my experience, the people who tend to pass are the people who spend more time revising in hospital than out of hospital. So you, it's really tempting to go home and sit and read your books and you know read through lists of differentials for I don't know uh, an ejection systolic murmur and the associated syndromes and and yes that's important but what's more important is actually how, how you find that sign and how you talk to the children how you examine the children so I find that people who do really well the people who just come into you know either the Heath or just their own hospital and just spend their weekends there their evenings there you you basically have to live in hospital when you revise for that exam um, and, and it's worth it in the end I think. So how long roughly in your experience would you find that people start preparing for the exam? The exam teaching program tends to start six weeks before the clinical exam. I personally didn't start revising before that because there was Christmas before that so <laughs> it wasn't really on my mind um, but I think if you do six weeks of solid revision then that's more than enough because you don't want to peak too soon and lose interest. Yeah, definitely. Um, and as obviously, yes, you've, bo- you've both mentioned um, working in groups and being on the ward. Do you have any sort of other things that you would be doing within those six weeks as well as, you know, you've mentioned about book work and sitting at home and things, but actually any top tips for maximising your time on the wards and, you know, what to do? sort of in a bit more detail? So I think pretty much every hospital will have at least one consultant there who's an examiner. So I, I was pretty lucky when we were doing our exams because I, I think two or three of the consultants in the hospital we were working in at the time were examiners. So whenever they were doing their ward rounds, I'd get myself to do the ward round for them with them watching. And then whenever I went to examine a patient, I'd ask them to watch me do it under exam conditions and then quiz me about it afterwards. And that worked really well to get ready. So that's something you can do. To, like That way you're doing your day job, but using that day job to get extra revision time in. I think it's useful when they do that for them to time you as well, if possible. Um, because it's something about having time pressure that makes it just a little bit harder. But if you do that over and over again, it makes it a bit easier on the day. I think as well, going to clinics is really useful so if you have any study days clinic days or you know I dread to say it but you know quite down the ward um you just go to clinic and explain to the person in clinic that you've got your clinical exam coming up and can you see some patients can they examine you in in a exam style yeah absolutely I think you had a couple of good clinics that you would suggest going to yeah so I mean this is probably more helpful for the local Wales trainees than anyone else who's listening but in Wales there's every couple of months in Cardiff there's a liver clinic that um, one of the gastro consultants recommended to me the team from Birmingham come down from the liver unit in Birmingham and then see the more complicated liver patients in Wales and Dr Dale made it clear that that's where you'll see most of the interesting signs so if you're if you need more practice revising for your abdo examination or want to see more liver-based cases, that's a really good clinic to go to. Yeah, community clinics are good as well. Mm. And um, there's the neonatal clinics are quite good for development as well. 
Exactly. I think the thing is with development is pretty much anyone's a candidate. So that's another way you can use your job because you can do a developmental assessment on anyone, get another reg to watch who's already done the exam or get a consultant to watch you and then do a full developmental while you're, you know, if you've got 10 minutes to spare on CAU between patients, why not? There's some great tips really because, yeah, as you say, I think it's really about getting on the ward and spending as much time as you can seeing patients and using every opportunity as a mini exam almost even if you don't have a friend you can sort of approach that patient that you're seeing in CAU with an exam mindset and think right I'm going to definitely start from looking at the hands and going up and doing everything whereas normally you'd probably just go for gold you know they've got a wheeze probably listen to the chest and kind of ignore the other things so yeah fabulous thanks guys for that we've got um a couple more questions really about the exam so any tips for the day of the exam itself so anything that you guys did or that you'd recommend other people to do so and these seem really basic and really nothing medical at all it's really important that you get there in plenty of time ideally the day before then ideally on the day before work out how you're actually going to get to the exam Mm. for example my exam was in Newcastle and I didn't plan my route. Well, I sort of vaguely planned my route to the hospital, but it wasn't until the day that I realised that Newcastle was a very complicated one-way system. And I left it quite fine in the end to actually get to the exam. And that's an unnecessary stress that you don't need. So plan your route, plan your outfit. Plan your outfit, yeah. I was just about to say, um, Mm. I was in my exam with some uh, very lovely demure ladies who, when they bent down to examine patients, were oh, that's a rookie fr- pretty and appropriately <laughs> dressed. They looked all right when they were stood up and, you know, yeah. but, um, so yeah, I'm trying to say, just mm. be careful what you're wearing, especially girls. And double, um, double check your suitcase. A friend of mine only packed one shoe. I've heard this story, mm. the one shoe. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, absolutely. I think one of my things is um, make sure when they, they give you the bunch of exam papers right at the beginning, make sure that you put them in the right order. Because I literally fumbled for about 20 seconds in every station trying to find the right piece of paper because I had not followed like basic instructions. So yeah, organise your papers in the right order and then give them to your examiner on the way in. Don't forget to do that like I did. I think what you said to us a few minutes ago was really useful, which I wish I had known before the (laughs) exam. So before the exam, you're sat in essentially a holding pen for about an hour because they want to get all the candidate candidate can't say the word now candidates all together before whilst they organise the patients and make sure they're all fed and watered and haven't been to loo and that kind of thing. Um, so they just want to make sure at least they've got one thing sorted. Anyway, in that time, you're with a load of people who are frantically reading through books, discussing rare metabolic syndromes, or talking about how anxious they are, which is making yeah. you more anxious. <laughs> and, Really, you don't you don't need that sort of hassle, and um, so Sophie just mentioned <laughs> that what she did before her exam was go to the loo for about oh, ten no. minutes and did really various various power stances, and I think that's a fantastic idea. Yeah, so I watched. I, I really like listening to TED talks in my spare time, and I watched a TED talk about how if you do a power pose for five minutes before a stressful situation like an interview or you know in our situation like a clinical exam it can um give other people a better impression of you i didn't know if it worked or not it was sort of a bit of pseudoscience in there but i did it and i passed so take from that what you will 
I think for, from our perspective, it'd be really handy to know what these power poses are in case anyone wants to jump in. So I think what would be great is if Sophie could demonstrate some power poses for us and then Sean can give us a visual description of what's going on. I think that'd be fantastic. Okay, right. So this is one of them. Okay, so basically I like to call this the mistrunchable pose. Legs apart, nice. uh, <laughs> hands on hips, looking pretty stern. Uh, I'm looking quite scared. I'm feeling quite scared. Um, right, but, and then this is the other one. Oh, that's the winner pose. That's the, I've just won the Olympics pose. So arms stretched up into the air, back extended, looking exceptionally happy to be here. Some fantastic demonstrations there. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. And I'm sure um, we'll put the link to the uh, TED Talk up on the website and we can put a couple of pictures. Not of me, you'll be pleased to know, of the power poses as well. So you can practice <laughs> at home. Fab. <laughs> so... <laughs> Thanks for, thanks for that bit of morning exercise, guys. Um, <laughs> um, so some of the tips for the actual like exam process, I mean, I had a friend called Yaz. She told me to breathe between stations because if you've had a really bad station, lots of people say, try and erase the station that you've had a bad station, go out, you've got four minutes between stations. Um, and in those four minutes, try and reset. And she sort of counted her breaths and did a bit of like mindfulness breathing type stuff and I'm not usually a believer in that sort of thing as well but I had a really bad station and came out and I could see everyone else in the exam circuit chatting to each other or not oh, chatting, not have to chat but mm-hmm. having a look at each other and sort of giving each other encouraging nods and all I wanted to do was like melt into the floor because I'd had such a bad station so I sort of remembered what Yaz had said and t- took a few deep breaths and things and that actually worked for the next station I managed to calm myself down so yeah, have you got any, um, you guys got any other tips for sort of exam technique in the actual exam? Tying back to um, preparation tip, is I think you need to have a, the exam is sort of quite a fake situation mm-hmm. and I think you need to have a script that you can run, you know, you can rattle off after every clinical examination uh, that you can sort of hang everything that you learned in that examination onto that script. For example, you know, um, this is Edward, he's a six-year-old boy who have done who I've done a clinical um, a cardiovascular exam on. And then you say, you know, the main positive finding, the important negative findings, always mention growth. You have to mention growth. And then what you're gonna do from there. And so that you can sound clear, confident and not waffle. Not waffle, a bit like I'm doing now. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's just... And actually, um, we didn't mention this before, but we probably will mention it later. There's the London Deanery website. I've got some really good examples of how to examine patients and then how to present your findings. And if you write down um, what they've said, for example, and then slot in you know, what's relevant for the patient you've just seen and practice that over and over again, then you sort of, you just know what's a clear, concise way of presenting a patient. Yeah, you need it to be almost instinctual, don't yeah. you? You kind of need to have everything down, so in the exam, when you're a bag of nerves, it all comes out without you yeah. really thinking about what exactly. you're trying to say. Yeah, and don't face the child. So have your back to the child when you're presenting, have your hands behind your backs, or your one back, <laughs> or, 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 um, or just hold your hands in front of you, just make sure you're not fiddling, 
make good eye contact with the examiner. Exactly. You need to get yourself into that yeah. stance naturally. It's probably similar to power posing, but if you can yeah. force yourself into a stance where mm -hmm. every time you finish an examination, you turn to the examiner confidently, no matter how nervous you feel, yeah. you get those hands behind your back. And I think you should practice that in the mirror at home. Yeah. Seems very silly, but look yourself in the eye in the, in, in the mirror mm -hmm. and practice saying things out loud to yourself. Because mm -hmm. in a way, that's almost more awkward than saying it to an examiner. So if you can do that confidently, yeah, exactly. then you'll be fine. And I think going briefly, similarly to what the hint that Yaz gave you, Sophie, about breathing between stations, you can probably find natural breathing points to during the examination to catch your breath and give yourself a chance to bring your thoughts together. So I did this when I was checking pulses, for example, during the cardiovascular station. Just take a few seconds, take a couple of deep breaths yourself while you're doing that and bring together the thoughts you had about what you've seen so far and where your examination should be leading you. I think, like you said, between the stations as well, you have to remember an exam a station can go horrifically badly. You can fail it, but it doesn't matter necessarily because, well, A, it doesn't matter if you fail a station because we'll go on to that with a new exam marking system, but also you can get the points that you need in other stations. So it's really important not to get worked up because it doesn't matter, it's in the past. Yeah. Leave that station, leave it behind you, move on to the next one. Um, yeah, so you mentioned, Sean, the London um, Deanery MRCPCH Clinical website has been really good. It's got loads of videos on it, hasn't it? All the different stations, development, everything. Yeah. Are there any other sort of books or websites that you guys would recommend for people, you know, when they're in the middle of a night shift and no one to examine, no friends to examine with? I mean, you should technically have another friend on your night shift with you to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, but there, so there's one book that we used quite a lot, actually, which is surprisingly difficult to get hold of a physical copy of now. But anyway, um, it's by Damien Rowland. What was it called again? Um, Clinical Circuits. Exam Circuits, and it's orange. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, that's not the full title. <laughs> the title is Clinical Exam Circuits, and the colour of the book is orange. <laughs> Um, and it's by Damien Rowland, who's um, one of the PEM consultants now, I think. Oh, really? um, anyway, it's, that's a really good book because essentially what it does is it gives you a full circuit of, and it has these circuits running about five or six times throughout the mm. book, each one slightly different. So you can just start, you can run it like you're doing an actual exam um, with a complete circuit. So that's a really mm. good way of revising. And it had loads of useful hints and tips in it as well. So that's what we did two weeks before wasn't it exactly and you need you need three people really so you've got one person who's being a patient one person who's being the examiner and one person who's being the person doing the exam exactly ideally <laughs> though you could do it on your own i think that's that's how the book was designed with being on your own in mind okay. but i think it works much better if there's a couple of you so you yeah. can run it off each other yeah so sophie you mentioned this book called uh, the mrcpch clinical short cases History Taking Communication Skills um, by three people called Simon Bedwani, Christopher Anderson and Mark Beattie. So we didn't use this, but Sophie has assured yeah. us that it's very good. Yeah, so that that's just basically a textbook to remind you of all the different things you do in the exam stations. It's good for a bit of theory. It's quite long is the only thing. Um, and, you know, don't feel that you have to cover everything because you, you guys already know, like, the theory you passed your theory exams, that's why do you're doing this one. Do not read through theory. Do you, yeah, absolutely, do not read through theory. You've done that, it's behind you. Forget mm. about it. 
Or don't forget about don't, it. Don't forget about <laughs> it. Try and remember <laughs> it. Try and keep some of it in mind. Um, but yeah, that one's really good. I, I found, especially, I don't know if you guys did this as well, but I used to go on YouTube. If I hadn't had, was reading or, or had heard about a syndrome, I'd never seen a patient with it, um, like congenital myotonic dystrophy, never seen a patient with that, Googled it and then came up on, on YouTube with like a patient story that their mum had done. And it was actually really great because they're always a bit of a tearjerker as well. So they're quite like lovely stories about, you know, the kids' progress and whatever. But you get to see a lot of pictures and videos of the kids growing up over the years. So, you know, you can, you can, you name it. There are videos on different syndromes that have been sort of put out there um, to make people aware about the various syndromes. But it's actually really good if you've never seen a kid with something. That can be a good way of finding out and it's not just the same as looking at a picture you know if you google i don't know osler's notes or whatever you'll come up with a picture of it but it's not quite the same when you come into a syndrome i guess it's more memorable if you've got a patient story behind it and actually i think that's the other thing about this exam it's sort of um well it's just so much more holistic in the sense that it really focuses on um the practical aspects of living with a chronic condition so it's really important to learn about the disability living benefits and yeah. um, you know local charities that support patients with various um, conditions. Yeah, and like learning about the MDT in its truest sense, yeah, not exactly. just sort of rattling off a list of people who are around the child, but actually knowing what, I don't know, Cystic Fibrosis Trust actually does yeah. and what, what they have available. It's actually quite interesting. And once you learn about it in this exam, you sort of have to force yourself to become aware of lots of things. But then day to day afterwards... You know about it already, yeah. so that when you do have pa- patients and parents, you can say, hang on a minute, have you gone on this website? It's actually really good. There are loads of patient information leaflets. So I think, in a way, although it's a bit sort of fake because you're cram learning lots of different things for the clinical exam, it it helps, it genuinely does help you afterwards. Yeah. So in, in terms of development, Sean, what, what um, books or resources would you recommend or how would you say to people, what's the best way of going about revising for development? So development can be really difficult for those of us who don't have children um, because, you know, between ages one and three, they all look the same to me. Um, <laughs> don't tell anyone I Didn't said tell that. anyone you're a pediatrician. <laughs> um, but I have been told there are, uh, well, there's a book called From Birth to Five Years, which I am told is quite a good book to just, you know, as a reference point in terms of, the milestones that you should have reached uh, by various stages. And, and that's written by someone called Mary Sheldon. Um, again, I think the important thing with that is that you only use one resource for learning development because there's so much very slight variation between different sort of sources about, you know, at what point can you build a tower of six bricks? And, you know, and it's easy to get confused. So I think read a book and then make your own table is the best thing to do and then just use the table that you've made and memorize that um again you can't nothing's better than actually doing your own developmental assessment so go to uh, the clinic waiting rooms go to the ward play rooms it doesn't even have to be the patients the patient's siblings um your friends children offer to babysit coffee shops are always full of children Um, Oh, please tell us about your coffee shop game. This is great. I love this. Uh, So, yeah, it's a bit of an embarrassing game. 
where you sit with a friend who is also doing the clinical exam and have a coffee and then you watch the children in the coffee shop and then you pick one child and between the two of you discuss which milestones you can see and how old you think that child is and then one of you has to go up and ask the parent how old that child is. The way it works is if you're right then you don't have to ask the parent next time. That's a way of learning in itself, sort of that cringy embarrassment learning. <laughs> Yeah, but you know it's 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 good, and actually the general public are surprisingly receptive to it. <laughs> Explain <laughs> to, why to you're... people taking interest in their <laughs> yeah. children. Yeah, I think yeah. most mums are actually all right with that. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I remember being in a coffee shop when you and Kira were playing that, and you started playing it without explaining to me what was going on. <laughs> so I was just I was just there, Sophie, <laughs> just having my coffee, and then I could hear these two these two talking in the background, like. Oh, that one's definitely running. Can you see him running? Oh, yeah, yeah, I can see him running. Oh, he's climbing up that. Okay, it's your turn to ask mum, though. And it was, <laughs> I had no idea what was going on until afterwards. It was fantastic. Just to go back to um, resources, there's, there's actually a really good article from birth to five years of age that um, I can't remember which journal it was published in, but it was a really good article. And I print it off and give it to everyone who I do yeah, developmental. Yeah, I did, didn't I? Um, but I can't remember who it's by. We can definitely see if we can find it and get a link to it to stick up on the website as well, can't yeah. we? So... Don't worry that you can't remember. But yeah, you gave it to me and it was really good. Had a good bit about pincer grip and the three stages of pincer grip. One of, yeah, just to add on to the development thing. Um, when I was revising for development, I went to a clinic with a community paediatrician um, and I said to her, oh, I'm really stressed out. I can't learn development. It doesn't stick in my head. I don't know how to do it. I don't have any friends here with kids that are available for me to you know, examine. What shall I do? And she said right follow me she took me out of the clinic room plonked me down in the waiting room and said i'll pick you up in half an hour watch these children so i did and i, I learned loads um and then in the end as i got more confident i came back with um the other people i was doing the exam with and we sort of just asked the parents if it was okay we were practicing for exams and these kids were in the waiting room waiting for their appointments and the only caveat being that you were in the middle of a developmental assessment and then the kid went into their general peds appointment, but that was fine because they came back out or they left the sibling with us. Nice way of babysitting for the mums as well. So that was a really good um, experience. And yeah, if you're struggling to find kids on the ward, they're too poorly, they don't want, parents don't want them to be examined. Could be a really good place because they're totally well. Always expect pathology on the developmental station because there's this sort of weird rumour that that's the one where you're going to get a normal child to assess and it's true if you're going to put a normal child anywhere it might well be in the developmental station but I don't think I've ever heard of an examination where they've had a normal child on the developmental station and it's normally common things that are easy for a developmental assessment like trisomy 21, autistic spectrum, um, CP. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, that, those as are in ones. child, not not child protection. Yeah, exam as well. Um, so yeah, and just um, a point on that as off. well. Um, yeah, as you were saying, in the development station, you probably will have a kid with pathology. But actually, remember two things. Firstly, that you're not being tested on spot diagnosis of the syndrome. So even if they do have trisomy twenty one, yes, it's important to mention it and notice it because it's important in general for that for that child's health that you know about. The other problems they're going to be having but don't go in there and just try and find out what the syndrome is it's not a clinical station it's development so don't get waylaid if you know what the syndromes uh, is and that was the first half of our interview with sophie sean and myself 
We'll play the second half of that interview at our next revision session. So I just wanted to say thank you very much to Sophie and Sean one more time. And thank you to ISO Sleazy for producing our music. Join us again next week when we'll have another episode up for you. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites. The first um, question really is to ask, what is the point of the MRCPCH clinical and why do we have to do it? Yeah, why do we have to do it though? Like, what's the point? I know. Why do we have to put ourselves through it?